you can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 is where we'll find ourselves this morning. And hopefully on your way in, you grabbed an outline as the answers to that outline will be on the screen behind me. Or you can just jot that down on uh, another piece of paper or in your phone, type it out. But uh, however you're looking at God's word this morning, go ahead and get to John chapter 3. And if you weren't with us last week, we started a four-part sermon series which is centered on our celebration and, and preparing us to celebrate Easter Sunday, which will take place next Sunday. And we began that series by looking at the early life and ministry of John the Baptist. And as we looked at John the Baptist, we looked at the significance of the statement in his reference to Jesus of behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there we saw how John's sense of identity and purpose and message were rooted in his understanding of who Jesus was and that he had come as the substitutionary atonement for our sin, revealing for us that we, as the covenant people of God, have the same identity, purpose, and message. And that is to point people to Christ in the same way which John was setting out to do. Of behold the Lamb of God. So church, as we approach Easter, I want us to do so while taking into full consideration the day and the time in which we are living. Phrases that we thought had long been retired are now relevant again. I mean, whoever, who would have ever thought that we would say the war in Europe and not be referring to World War II? Or the increasing opposition to God's word and to God's church around the world. Complete political and societal polarization across the board. But all of these are symptoms of a world that is broken and darkened by sin. And this is the very reason why the gospel message which we proclaim shines so bright. And it was why it shined so brightly through John's declaration and through Jesus. And so my goal for us in this four-part series is to prepare, to celebrate, and to savor all that the resurrection has to offer us. See, the first two messages of this series are dedicated to preparing our hearts and building great anticipation toward Resurrection Sunday. So that as we approach next Sunday, our hearts are anxiously inclined to celebrate what is the cornerstone of our faith, that is the resurrection of Christ. And so finally, as we approach the Sunday after Easter then, I want us to focus on how the resurrection compels us then to live how does it challenge us and, and push us and motivate us as we respond to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? And so I've titled this morning's sermon, Man of Sorrows. We sang the song titled that just a few moments ago, but that title, my title and the title for that song do not come from one another. Obviously, they didn't name the song after my sermon, uh, but... It comes from Isaiah 53, and we'll get to that just later on in this morning's sermon. But as we dive into God's Word, I hope that we will take away this morning an overwhelming compulsion to firmly fix our eyes on the cross of Christ leading up to Resurrection Sunday. 
Because it is at the cross and what Christ accomplished there for us is what makes the empty grave so sweet a victory for you and me. So we're at John chapter 3. I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word as we read verses 1 through 9. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Let's pray. God, as we look at this interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus, and as we consider the implications that it has for our own lives and how it should challenge and motivate us in Jesus revealing who he is and what is necessary for us to be a part of your kingdom, I pray that you would convict us where necessary this morning and that you would motivate and, and encourage us where necessary this morning in each of our lives so that we would unify together as your church, leave this place changed by your word for your glory, declaring your glory as we go about our lives. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So John's gospel account is unique. It's unique in that it's not necessarily concerned with the storyline, the chronological storyline of Jesus, as much as it is the theology of who Jesus was and what he came to do. This is a part of John's message throughout his gospel account. And we saw this a little bit last week as we briefly talked about chapter 1. And we saw the vivid imagery used by John to communicate the identity of Jesus. And this is why oftentimes we'll say that the perfect starting place for any new believer is the gospel of John because of how it declares who Jesus was and what he came to do and the implications then that that has on our lives. And so instead of a birth account of Jesus, we get the beautiful words of John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created by Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. That as we move along, we get right to the, the meat of the story, so to speak. 
where we're introduced to John the Baptist, as we looked at last week. And then we see John reference Jesus' baptism. And then we move along into chapter 2. We move to John's statement and see that he is the sacrificial Passover lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we move to chapter 2. We see that Jesus was gathering disciples and turning water into wine at a wedding. And the very symbolic act of Jesus cleansing the temple. And we see crowds beginning to have conversations with him and marvel at his teaching. And then that brings us to where we start this morning in John chapter 3. And we see in verse 1, so Jesus has already done all of this. Again, because John is not looking at to build the chronological storyline, but he is getting straight to the point of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so we come to John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, there are several details which here provide us great insight and context into not just the person of Nicodemus, but also the condition of his heart. First, we see him described as a Pharisee. Now, looking back to last week's message where we were in John 1, looking at the identity and the purpose and the message of John the Baptist, we saw John being questioned by a group sent from the Pharisees. And so this group of priests and Levites were questioning John. We look at verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 24. We see that this group, like I said, was sent by the Pharisees. So it's very likely that Nicodemus was part of the group who sent this delegation of Levites and priests to question John. And now we move from this group of Levites and priests questioning John as we see Jesus go about his ministry and performing some of these things that I, I summarized for us just then, and now we come and we have not a group of Levites and priests being sent, but we have a Pharisee himself coming to question Jesus. And so this one detail of Nicodemus being a Pharisee tells us everything that we need to know about Nicodemus going into this conversation with Jesus. See, at this point in Nicodemus's life, as a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have known by heart all 613 of the Old Testament commandments. He would likely have large portions of the Old Testament itself memorized, and he would have pledged to zealously uphold every law with his life. So Nicodemus is no ordinary inquirer of Jesus. This is not just another face in the crowd, and this is not some first-year religion major. This is the professor coming to question and, and inquire Jesus. So, but if that doesn't tell us enough, John also describes Nicodemus as not just a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. So not only is he of upstanding moral character, given his zealous commitment to know and keep the law and his wealth of knowledge when it comes to God's word. But Nicodemus is also has status and power within the group that has status and power. You see, this title, ruler of the Jews, indicates that Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin. In fact, this is confirmed just a few chapters later in John as we see Nicodemus in a heated discussion with the group of the Sanhedrin as he's part of this group. So what is this man who has all these accomplishments and who has this status and this power and this knowledge, this wealth of knowledge, 
What is this man doing seeking counsel with Jesus? Well, we open the Gospel of John with John the Baptist being publicly questioned, like I said, by this group of Pharisees. Now we have this Pharisee Jewish ruler looking to question Jesus. Just, but is he looking to question Jesus just as the group that was sent to John? Yes, but as we'll see here in just a little bit, Nicodemus is coming to question Jesus in a much different way. So we see verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this verse provides us with even more insight into Nicodemus and specifically the posture in which he's entering this conversation. First, we see he comes at night. So as a rule of thumb, when an author includes a detail like this in the Bible, it's not just some useless detail. It's not just to indicate the the time or anything like that. All throughout the New Testament, but specifically here in the Gospel of John, we see this consistent theme This this literary element of the light versus the darkness, as we saw in John 1, where we see in the beginning was the word, and we go on to say, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So John starts his gospel with displaying Jesus, or writing as Jesus, as the light and life of men. And how his light shines in the darkness of this world. And now we see this Pharisee, ruler of the Jews, coming at night. Coming in the darkness. So it's not just that he's coming under cover of darkness. But John here is giving us indication into the condition of Nicodemus' heart. So throughout the Gospel of John, we see darkness represents spiritual darkness darkness, and light represents the truth of the gospel revealed in the person of Jesus. And so the apostle John is writing this gospel in a thematic and theological focus, not necessarily in chronological order, as we've already discussed. So as we touched a bit last week, he opens with that statement, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. So Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night is a key detail showing us that Nicodemus didn't want his meeting with Jesus to be noticed by anyone else, but instead he came by cover of darkness. It also shows and foreshadows for us the conflict within Nicodemus' life. See, the other detail that we see there in verse 2 is that as he comes to Jesus under cover of darkness, do you see how he addressed Jesus? Rabbi. We know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, we've already seen this title of rabbi used in the Gospel of John. We saw it last week when, uh, towards the end of our sermon last week, where we saw Andrew in chapter 1, verse 38, Simon Peter's brother, address Jesus as rabbi. After he addresses Jesus as rabbi, follows Jesus, Jesus tells Andrew to follow him. And as we discussed at the end of last week's sermon, Andrew then goes and gets his brother. And after he goes and gets Peter, he tells him, not we have found a rabbi, but instead we have found the Messiah. So this title of rabbi is one that Nicodemus himself would have been very familiar with because his life and his stature demanded the the respect given of this title. 
So he respects, he, he sees something in Jesus. Something that he obviously also knows of himself because he would have commanded that he be referred to by this title. And so in referring to Jesus as rabbi, we see that Nicodemus sees something in Jesus. And Nicodemus says as much there as he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So even though he comes under cover of darkness, he comes acknowledging that there's just something about this Jesus, something about this man that he, that he can't quite put his finger on. The things that he has seen, the things that he has heard from Jesus, the things that the report that he heard from the group that he sent to, to question John. He knows that Jesus has to be from God or speak with the authority of God because Nicodemus acknowledges Jesus as rabbi. Now, this brings us to our first point this morning that we see in Nicodemus' life. In Nicodemus, we're going to see a man whose worldview and whose value system becomes totally shattered by the truth of the gospel. And in turn, what I want us to see is that as the light of the gospel shines into the darkness of our hearts, the gospel illuminates our longing for truth. The gospel illuminates our longing for truth. All of us are starved for concrete truth. That's the issue that we see and the tension that we see in our world. Nicodemus comes to Jesus searching for truth. He comes in search of the truth that he has heard heralded by John. He comes searching for the truth that he has seen, lived out, and taught in the life of Jesus himself. And he knows there's something different about Jesus. Nicodemus can't deny that there's something different about this rabbi. So his identity as a Pharisee, a zealous upholder and defender of the law, then compels him to seek out, what is this truth that I've missed? Why, does, why is his teaching so much different than mine? I've missed something. He, there's something that he doesn't know. And as I said, we're all hungry and starved for truth. And it's precisely because of the denial of absolute truth that our society finds itself in the position that it is today. You see, the truth of the gospel draws us in because it is in stark contrast to this world. And when the light of the gospel shines into the darkness of our hearts, it illuminates our longing. For truth and reveals that we have been, it reveals what we have been searching for all along. The problem with the majority of our world is that their hearts are so hardened by sin that they deny the truth that is right in front of them. See, Nicodemus has achieved all that he had set out for in life. Yet when he sees and he hears and he experiences the things that Jesus is doing and saying, he realized he must have missed something. Because there's something different about what this guy is doing and what this rabbi is teaching. And so in Nicodemus' mind, that just can't be. He's memorized it all. He knows it all. He's declared his life to zealously uphold and protect all of the commands of Scripture. And now he spends his life ruling over those who can't match his own greatness. You see, this also reveals our second point this morning. 
which is that the gospel shatters the understanding of this world. So the gospel illuminates our longing for truth and it shatters whatever worldly understanding we might have. The gospel shatters the understanding of this world. The Pharisees' zeal for the law drove them to become religiously over-ritualized and pious in their belief and in their practice. This, of course, was the problem that God had been addressing with his people all the way up into the time of Malachi. That the point of the law was to expose the insufficiency of man's sinful flesh and drive the covenant people of God into greater dependence and appreciation of God's mercy and grace. And so again, in Nicodemus' mind, there's no way that he missed something. So he has to figure out who this rabbi is that has greater grasp of God's word than he does. As we shall see, this is exactly the posture which the gospel puts us in. As the gospel shatters our understanding, it humbles us to the point where our hearts are then able to be made new. See, in order for us to really grasp the gospel, we have to first die to our old way of life. See, where the ways of this world are life-restricting, the gospel is life-giving because it shatters the hardness of our hearts so that we can be made new. And when we realize the truth of the gospel revealed in God's word, we can't help but respond by seeking it out. And that is what is at work in Nicodemus's life here. As he has heard and seen these things, he has got to figure out what is with this rabbi. And just as that happens in us, our hearts are stirred to life within us because we realize that this is what we've been missing. So, As we continue to look here, Nicodemus has achieved the high status of his culture, but when he came face to face with the truth of the gospel, shining brightly into the darkness of his heart, it exposed everything that he had swept into the corner. All that religious self-piety, pride, is brought into the light, and he needed to know more. So we see there in verse 3, Jesus answers Nicodemus' question. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So in this one sentence, Jesus demolishes Nicodemus' entire life work. Up until this point, Nicodemus' entire life had been predicated on his interpretation that his spot in heaven was guaranteed because of who he was and what he had accomplished. And Jesus effectively says, not good enough. Not good enough. And may we come to grips with that same reality. Because this is exactly why we should never cease to, nor never grow tired of, preaching the gospel to ourselves. This is why we should feel convicted every time we tune out the gospel being presented. Because the moment we think that we have outgrown the gospel or that it has become rudimentary to us is the moment that we place ourselves exactly where Nicodemus is right here. Martin Luther once said, we need to hear the gospel every day because we forget it every day. The only thing which can bring us into right standing before God the Father and into heaven is that which we cannot do for ourselves. Our sin must be atoned for. We must be born again. And for a man with Nicodemus' resume, 
that just don't make sense. That doesn't track with Nicodemus. So Nicodemus gives a nonsensical answer and somewhat of a sarcastic response. We see there in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus may be earnestly searching for truth, but he's still a Pharisee. So Jesus has just challenged not only his entire worldview, but his entire idea of self-worth, his identity, his purpose, and his message. With Jesus' proclamation that in order for one to, to see the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And so Nicodemus responds in a very hyperbolic fashion, taking Jesus' words literally. Now, we do this same thing when we're in a dispute or a debate with someone, do we not? We take what they say and we ratchet it up to the, the most literal level that we can so as to render their point or their word nonsensical. And this is what Nicodemus is doing in this moment. Because it's hard for me to think that a man of Nicodemus' intellect and religious knowledge would seriously respond in this way. But as we're about to see, Jesus doesn't back down. Instead, he doubles down and triples down on the truth. So we pick back up there in verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Nicodemus' response there at the end brings us to our next point for this morning, and that is that the gospel exposes our insufficiencies. As the light of the gospel shines in our life and in our hearts, it exposes our insufficiencies, and it chips away at the calluses of our hearts, and it begins to reveal reality to us that we don't have it all together that we can't be anything or anyone we want to be, that there is, in fact, nothing good in and of ourselves, and that it is only when we die to this life and are born again that we find who we were created to be. And Nicodemus's problem was not his lack of knowledge, but it's his lack of understanding. As we said, he's a Pharisee. He's, he's memorized 613 Old Testament commandments, large portion of the Old Testament memorized, zealously obeyed it all. The problem for Nicodemus and the rest of the Pharisees is that they failed to see the forest for the trees. See, God's kingdom wasn't about automatic salvation because of having physically been born a Jew, nor was it about one's ability to keep the law. The idea is that as long as the nation abided by his word, then when children were born, they would be raised in a legacy of generational faith. The purpose of the law was to expose the people's need for God's grace and supernatural transformation, to reveal their insufficiencies so that they may declare his grace and glory to the nations. You see, left to our own abilities, we are not enough to save us. We need someone outside ourselves. And Nicodemus' understanding of salvation is limited to his own ability to comprehend. 
his own ability to obey, his own achievements. And Jesus is telling him that nothing that he has done to this point is good enough to cover his sin. And Nicodemus responds, how? I've done it all, and I've done it better than anyone. I was the best Sunday school teacher. I had perfect Sunday school attendance. I had large portions of the Bible memorized. I tithed the most. I gave the most to Annie Armstrong. I signed the church covenant. I did this. I did that. Or how about those outside the faith who falsely believe, I'm, I'm a good dad and I'm a, I'm a good mom and I, I do good things. I obey the law. I try to do good things now and then. I give to charity. I tip big at holidays. I do this. I do that. All of these may be good and virtuous things. And definitely that list that we see there of church things that we often use to justify ourselves is good. But when it comes to establishing us on level ground before a thrice holy and sovereign God who is the just judge of all, not good enough. We see in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Or Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In order for sin to be atoned for, a proper sacrifice is required. And there is a cost to our sin. And that cost cannot be paid by trying to outmatch our sin with good deeds. And this is what is the conflict within Nicodemus's heart. Nicodemus's question echoes in the hearts of all those confronted with the truth of the gospel. How can these things be? For those of us in Christ, we know that the answer to all of life's questions are found in the person of Jesus and his work on the cross. And we err when we seek answers outside of that and in the ways of this world. It is increasingly common to see people today who describe themselves as having walked away from the faith or say they've gone through a process of deconstructing their faith. This is particularly common among people in my age demographic of millennials. Some of you just made the connection that I'm a millennial. But it is none too surprising that as I listen to these stories from some of them, my friends from college or, or high school, and hear these stories and go back to the root of their faith. I'll hear and see that they responded to the gospel or seemingly responded to the gospel out of emotion and that it never took root in their heart because it continued to be based on seeking one emotional experience after another. Eventually, because their faith was built on shifting sand, instead of growing deep roots into the truth of God's word, they grew roots that were broad along the surface, but only an inch deep. So when the winds came and the ground grew wet from rain, their faith came crashing down. And the common theme amongst all these stories that we see and that we hear is that they all begin with echoing the question of the snake in the garden. Did God really say? Of questioning God's word. When we fail to properly understand and apply God's word, we run the risk 
of allowing our ability and our voice to become the predominant force in our life. Nicodemus is in need of the same thing which all of us are in need of, and that is a heart which has been supernaturally transformed by the truth of the gospel. And this was explicitly laid out for him. It was explicitly laid out for the people of God the same way it's explicitly laid out for us in God's word. You see Jesus there in verses 7 through 8. Look at that again. Do not marvel that I said to you. He tells them you shouldn't be surprised about this. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And his example is this, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound but do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, this is a familiar illustration of using a natural phenomenon like the wind to illustrate the spirit or the breath of God. In fact, this is a very natural thing in both of our biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew because the word for spirit is the same word for wind. And so here, the word used for spirit, so this is a, a play on words that Jesus is doing here. And as the word for spirit here in the Greek is pneuma, it is also the word for wind. But really, we see this also in the Old Testament. And one of the more well-known places that we see this is Ezekiel 37. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to just write that down. The, the verse will be on the screen behind me, but... We see Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, one of the more popular stories from the Old Testament. As he said, the spirit or the ruach of God led him to the valley. And where we read in Ezekiel 37, then he said to me, so that's God speaking, prophesy to the breath. Also the same, the spirit of God led me, prophesy to the breath or the ruach. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. We see this also in creation, where God breathes life into Adam. He, ruach. Where we see the spirit of God, the ruach of God, hovering over the surface of the deep. And so here in Ezekiel, as the wind blows and bones begin to rattle and take form, if you're familiar with this story, you know, so the spirit or the breath of God blows across this valley of dry bones and they begin to rattle, they take form and they form muscle and sinew and organs and they're before, standing before him is a, a living army. And here the breath of God is the breath of life. So as God breathes the bones that were once dead come alive. Just as we see, as I said, in Genesis and just as we see uh, in the creation of Adam and in the creation of the world. But really, what God is doing here in Ezekiel is taking Ezekiel to the, the Valley of Dry Bones. He's showing him a physical representation for what he is preparing to do through the coming new covenant. And we really grasp this and see this if we look back to Ezekiel 36, right before this moment. Ezekiel 36, you can write that down to the side there as well. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, where God says in speaking through Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit, ruach, within you. 
I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So the example that Jesus is giving when he says the wind blows where it wishes is that the kingdom of God is not bound by the abilities of sinful man, but is instead a complete act of God's sovereign grace. So just as God's breath gives physical life according to his will, so too does God's spirit give spiritual life according to God's will. So church, let us learn from the example of Nicodemus not to fall prey to simply having a thorough knowledge of God's word while missing a complete understanding of God's word. Don't allow yourself to come here week in and week out and simply expand your knowledge of God's word without allowing God's word to take root and affect change and the wind of his spirit to blow through our hearts and completely change us and make us new. And so the question which begs asking this morning is the very reality which Nicodemus is confronted with by Jesus here. And that is the question, have you been born again? You see, Jesus says, it doesn't matter this title of Pharisee or this title of ruler of the Jews. It doesn't matter how many Old Testament commands you have memorized. If it hasn't affected change here, he says, I don't care how many checks are next to your name on the Sunday school roll. I don't care how many checks you've put in the offering plate or the drop box. I don't care how many eggs you dropped off outside in the welcome center. Uh, If you have not submitted yourself to the work of Christ on the cross, then something's missing. Have you been born again? And we certainly need to be doing those things. But they need to be in an overflow of obedience to God and God's word from a heart that has been made new. You see, I don't care what your list of good deeds looks like in comparison to your list of bad deeds. Have you submitted yourself to the work of Christ on the cross and have repented of your sin and been born again? Because if you haven't, none of that other stuff matters unless you submit to the work of Christ. And this is the conflict in Nicodemus' life here. So Jesus uses the wind as an illustration, saying the wind blows where it pleases. So it is with those who have been born by the Spirit. In other words, just as the wind blows where it pleases, without you being able to guide it, see it, or control it, so it is with the new birth. If you want to be born again, it has to be a supernatural act of the Spirit working to change you from the inside out, not the outside in. And for Nicodemus, this contradicts everything that he's based his life on. That is his own merit, his own ability, and his own status. Nicodemus came to Jesus searching for answers to some hidden truth, some box that he must have left unchecked, some next level status for him to achieve. Instead, Jesus gives him the full gospel truth, that which he needed and that which we need is not for ourselves to be lifted up to some higher status, but for Jesus to be lifted up on the cross so that the Spirit could do a supernatural work within us and within Nicodemus and take this heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Because as we keep reading, as we keep reading, we see that that's exactly where Jesus points Nicodemus, is to the cross. As you move forward there to verse 10, Verse 10, 
So Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, the gospel fixes our eyes on the cross. See, Jesus challenges Nicodemus' grasp of God's word here. Did you see that? Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? In verse 14, we see Jesus refer there to the story from Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, this point in the story of the people of Israel, we've seen the Lord provide for the people, proving himself faithful time and time again. We've seen the, the people of Israel continually prove themselves rebellious and perpetually disobedient. And just before this incident, they make a vow to the Lord. And God provides them victory over a, a pagan king. And after providing them victory over a pagan king, then just a few verses later, their journey gets hard, food gets scarce, and they immediately begin to doubt God's faithfulness. And they begin grumbling and complaining. So God punishes their sinfulness by sending poisonous snakes amongst their camp. And many people die as a result of these poisonous snakes. And then we read this in Numbers chapter 21, verse 7. You want to jot that down. Numbers 21, verse 7. And this is what Jesus is referring to. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And so Moses goes to the Lord and this is what God tells him to do. And don't miss this. The Lord says for Moses to take a fiery snake and fix it on a pole and to put it in the middle of the camp and that anyone who has been bitten must look at it. And if he looks at it, he will live. So in other words, God tells him to take the very image of that which is terrifying them, that which is causing death and destruction and chaos within the camp. Put it in the middle of the camp and make them look at it. Make them fix their eyes on their own sinfulness. Because in looking at it in faith, God will provide healing for that which is afflicting them. See, Moses lifts up the snake, the very depiction of that which is killing them because of their own doing, and the Lord provides healing and salvation for the people. So don't, this is it. He is the main character of all Scripture. Because Jesus tells Nicodemus, just as Moses lifted up the snake, the very image of death in the wilderness, so I must be lifted up as the very image of the punishment of sin. The only place where we can find salvation in Jesus, we have everything we need, and everything we need is in Jesus. 
So just as the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, all those who look to the cross of Christ in faith for healing through the redemption of their sin will be saved. Why? Because as we saw John address Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, so without proper sacrifice, there can be no proper atonement. And so the problem, as we outlined at the start this morning, is that despite the truth being evident for all of us to see, the majority of our world willingly looks away because of the hardness of their heart. And so Jesus says, just as Moses lifted the snake, I will be lifted up for all to look at and see and fix their eyes on the cross. And Jesus continues there in verse 16. For God so loved the world. So that for is essentially like a therefore or a so. And so because the Moses, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So just as God provided salvation in lifting up the snake, God provided salvation in lifting up his own son. And Jesus is saying, this is what is happening here. So the emphasis of this verse is not on the world. The emphasis of this verse is not on whoever believes. The emphasis is on he who is being lifted up and what must take place. And we see that as we continue reading. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. So the question that begs us again is, have you been born again? Because we are all created by God for relationship with God. And as we see, we have all rebelled against God, and we prefer darkness over the light. And so because of that, God sent his son to be lifted up on behalf of us to make atonement for our sin. Because our sin separates us from relationship with God. And that if we fix our eyes in faith to the cross, then our sin is atoned for. Because in spite of our sin, God loved us and made a way for us to be forgiven and restored to right relationship with ever. In the person of Jesus, God stepped into our brokenness to make a way for us out of brokenness. Just as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, all those and all those who looked to it were healed, so too all those who by faith alone fix their eyes to the cross of Christ will be saved. Not from the bite of a snake, but from the bite of death itself. And this presents a problem for the world. Because, as we read there in verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come to the world and people love darkness rather than light. This presents a problem for the world because not all people will look to the light. Not all people will look to the cross of Christ and fix their eyes on it in faith. 
Does God love the world? Absolutely. He loved the world so much that he gave his only son to be the atoning sacrificial lamb. However, this does not mean that the sacrifice automatically covers everyone because that's universalism. It means you have to look to the cross. You have to look at your sin, look at your shame, come to grips with the reality of the darkness that you have lived in so that the light can expose that. See, John echoes this, the Apostle John echoes this in 1 John 4.10 where he says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because it's not the world that inherits eternal life, but instead it's those who believe in him. Those who by grace, through faith, fix their eyes on the very image of their sin, the slaughtered lamb of God, the man of sorrows. Jesus fixed on the cross, suffering for our sin. God's son, sent as a free gift and is available to all. The problem is not all will look to him for salvation and not all fix their eyes on the cross. We know that all creation shouts his glory and shouts his existence. And we read this in Romans 1, but we also, it's not just in Romans, Jesus says so himself right there. As we continue reading verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light. See, this is the issue, is that our hearts are naturally bent toward hating the light and living in the darkness where we can control. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen and his works have been, that his works have been carried out in God. So it is no coincidence that we begin this account with being told of the detail of Nicodemus coming to Jesus in darkness and Jesus' final words to Nicodemus are dealing with the disparity between light and darkness. There's a few chapters later here in John 8, 12. John accounts to Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then as we move along, we see that the light of the glory of the cross shines in our hearts so that it exposes these things in us and it produces in us a lifestyle that says and declares the glory of the cross. And that brings us to the final point this morning that a heart changed by God's grace finds purpose in declaring God's glory. Nicodemus appears only two more times in the story of Jesus. He's just kind of there in the background as you move through. But in John 7.50... We see he's a part of a discussion with the Sanhedrin. And they hire men to come and get Jesus and bring him back to them. But these men became floored by Jesus' teaching. And so they came back to the Pharisees empty-handed. And the Pharisees are greatly upset with this. And they begin to say, they mock these men by saying, Are you fooled too? And Nicodemus speaks up. And says in verse 51 of John 7, Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And so then the Pharisees begin to mock him too. And so we see the truth that Jesus spoke to him is still resonating in Nicodemus' heart. So much so that he's willing to risk his reputation by essentially speaking up for Jesus in this moment and saying, let's hear him out. And the next place that we see Nicodemus is John 19, 39. 
John 19. I'll encourage you to turn there as we prepare to wrap up this morning. I know it's been a lot to drink in, but John 19, verse 38. John 19, 38. This is the last place that we see Nicodemus. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So this obviously after the crucifixion, Jesus is dead. He came and took away his body. Nicodemus also was, who, had, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed at hand, they laid Jesus there. So the last place that we see Nicodemus, we see him first come to question Jesus by night. We see him standing up for Jesus in the face of the Pharisees. And then we see Nicodemus coming to help lay Jesus to rest. Nicodemus came face to face with seeing his sin upon the shoulders of Jesus, lifted up on the cross, just as Jesus told him he would. And just as with Moses and the sins of people fixed to the fiery serpent, it moved him to respond. Him who had previously come by night is now there in the light of day, helping to bury Jesus. I'll finish with this. Isaiah 53. I want to end with us seeing Jesus laid in the tomb as we prepare for next Sunday where we will celebrate that that tomb is empty. But here in Isaiah 53, we see the reality that this was God's plan, that, that the Lord knew this would happen because the Lord ordained it to happen. In Isaiah 53, we see through the prophet Isaiah, one of the clearest examples of the messianic prophecy that who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And you jump down to verse 10 of Isaiah 53, we read this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, 
he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Let's pray. And we thank you for the work of Christ on the cross. We thank you for everything that this season in the church resembles and reminds us. God, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not fixed their eyes on the cross, has not looked by grace through faith to the work of Christ on the cross to atone for their sin, that you would move them to repentance. God, for those of us who you have made your spirit blow through our hearts, replaced our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh, may we never grow tired of fixing our eyes on the cross. Because God, as we celebrate next week, the cross is empty, but so is the grave. And we ask that you would prepare our hearts, that you would help us to celebrate the resurrection, and that you would help us to savor the resurrection to live in light of the resurrection. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.